Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? Whitewash by Rose Macaulay The sea, as it swung gently against the rocks, was jade green, like the evening sky. I was reclining on thymy turf, reading the story of Saint-Michel. Six feet down in the sea, my aunt was scrambling among broken marble wreckage that had once been an imperial bath. When she surfaced, I looked up from Dr. Axel Munter and said, it's nice to know what an excellent man Tiberius actually was, after all one was brought up to think of him. My aunt coughed up water and turned on her back to float. I know nothing of the sort, she said. I would rather believe his contemporaries than these modern whitewashers. And I have the islanders with me to a man, woman and child. Naturally, I agreed, Timberio is a local industry— if he lost his wickedness, he would have nothing but a few ruined villas and baths and a rock up there by the Faro, from which no one was ever thrown. What use would visitors have for a beneficent old gentleman who retired here to flee the corrupt world and commune with his soul? Suetonius and Tacitus, and all the legend-makers since, are the local Bible. But they're wrong. Timberio has been cleared— and I am delighted that all these villas and baths were used by so saintly an emperor. One after another, said my aunt, they take them from us. Nero, Tiberius, the Borgias, King John, Richard III. Are we to be deprived of all the monsters of the past? Are they all to be of the present? How long will it be before our contemporary monsters have the whitewashed buckets poured over them and emerge saints or victims of circumstance? more sinned against than sinning. Most of us are more sinning than sinned against. Why should monsters be exceptions? I made no effort to convert my aunt on this subject. She required monsters, and as far as I was concerned, could have them. I shall go exploring some of the caves, I said. Will you come? Not I, said my aunt, when one thinks what went on in them, she added primly as she climbed out of the sea. I am going back to the villa. Dinner at nine. I'll be back, I said. My aunt draped herself in her skylit bernous and set off up the steep rock stairway that would conduct her in the end to the villa. I dropped into the warm twilight sea again and swam round the next jut of rock. Above me the island sloped down to the sea, smelling of pine and thyme and cistus and the stored heat of the August day. Below me lay Roman villas and baths that had slipped long since into the waves and got drowned. I had explored these remains often enough. What I wanted now was a cave. There was one a little further on. I swam into it. It was a deep cave, thrusting far back into the rock. Round it, just above sea level, ran a broad ledge, slippery and green with seaweed. I hoisted myself onto it and walked along it. It was almost dark inside the cave, but after walking a few yards I felt a draught on my right and saw a good-sized round opening in the rock. I remembered tales told by the locals of passages that climbed up from the caves to one or other of Timberio's villas. Perhaps this one did so. I entered it, meaning to explore it for a little way. It sloped gently up and was about the height of my shoulders, but I didn't get far. A cold wind suddenly came against me like a hand on my chest, pushing me back. 
It struck me that I would rather explore that passage by day, and that I was inexplicably shivering, and had better get out of the cave and go home. In a few moments I was back on the slippery ledge. The little waves were lapping against the rock with a sound like whispering voices. Or was it sharp, frightened gasps? A frightened crowd, it sounded like, a collection of people scared out of their wits. I slipped down into the water, which had become colder, and swam towards the cave's mouth. Outside was the green evening sky, the green evening sea. At the entrance I felt oddly as if a strong tide were running against me. I swam but made no progress. In fact, I was being pushed back. But there was no tide, and the sea was calm. I struck out harder and was pushed back further. I began to panic. What current was driving with such force into the cave that I couldn't swim against it? I remembered nightmare battles with the Cornish tides that, swim as I would, carried me out to sea, the landmarks slipping from me in a losing race. I had been rescued by boats. There was no boat now, and I could not get out. I was growing tired. I was not a strong swimmer. Suppose I had to spend the night on that slippery, slimy ledge among that whispering, frightened chatter, and would the sea rise? The Mediterranean is not quite tideless. I went on struggling. For a moment it seemed to me that I made headway. Then, looking up, I saw a dark shape, floating quietly just outside the cave's mouth. It was just under the surface, but for a sharp, sail-shaped fin. It seemed to wait, rolling to and fro, in no hurry. But just waiting. That decided me. I retreated into the cave and climbed onto the ledge. I was shaking so much that I could scarcely make it. If the shark should enter the cave, I would climb into the passage. I sat on the cold ledge, huddled up, my arms round my knees. It seemed to me that the chattering and whispering of the sea slapping against the rocky wall was louder, quicker, more verbal. The atmosphere in the cave was tense. It was sheer terror. It caught me like a wave, drowning me in cold panic. I have never known fear so intense, such submerging anguish. Then, above the whispered clamour, rose a soft, jeering voice from the passage behind me. It said, Weni, Keti, Weni. The next moment the cave mouth darkened. The great white shark drove in with a noise of rushing water. I saw its white belly and its row of terrible teeth. I didn't wait. I plunged head first into the passage in the rock. Then something more than a wind drove against me. It was as if some other strength met mine, pushing me back. I gripped a jut of rock with both hands. My feet were tensed against the side wall of the passage. I looked into the darkness of the corridor that wound ahead. Suddenly, on it, there hung palely, as in phosphorescent light, a head and face I knew. I'd seen it on coins, in busts, in reliefs, a handsome, sneering face, its lips curled now in a sensual smile. From them came a rich, pleased chuckling, and from the cave behind me came a snapping of jaws and a thin screaming, and splash after splash, as if things were being dragged down from the ledge into the water. At each splash came the low chuckling. I was being pushed, but half-heartedly, as if the pusher's attention were concentrated elsewhere, 
or as if there were no real bodily contact. I held on to my position with hands and feet. I was not really much afraid of losing it, for I was alive and the pusher had been dead for close on two thousand years, and what physical force can the dead and the living exert over one another? My terror was of the scene behind me, the thin screams, the snapping jaws, the splashing, and of the leering phosphorescent face hanging in the dark rock corridor in front of me, and of that enjoying chuckle. I shut my eyes, but could not stop my ears. I do not know how long the ghastly scene lasted, but before very long I realised that there was silence in the cave, but for a heavy gorged wallowing sound. Then the drawling voice said, Abi, Kete, Abi Hine, and the heavy shape seemed to flounder through the water, out of the cave, into the sea beyond. I opened my eyes. The face was gone. I seemed quite alone. The soft slap-slap of water against the rock was no longer like whispering voices. I slithered down onto the ledge, staring in horror at the deep green water below me, now silvered by the first long shafts of rising moon. I don't know what I feared to see in it. Mangled limbs, ripples running red. But there was only green seawater touched with silver. All the same, I did not get into it. I followed the ledge round to the cave's mouth and peered warily out. No dark shape was in sight, no fin. I knew I was alone. I slipped into the moonstruck sea and swam round the jut of rock to the place where we had bathed among the ruins of the Roman bath. My bathing wrap lay there. Putting it over my shivering body, I was back in the twentieth century. The tension slackened, I lay limply on the rocks, and was sick. What time it was, I had no idea. Getting up, I saw the story of Saint-Michel lying open where I had put it down. I picked it up and climbed the path up the hill. I came in through the open French window. My aunt lay smoking in a long chair. So there you are at last, she said. I've kept your dinner for you. Do you know, she added reflectively, I was beginning to fear the Timberio had got you, after all. I began to think so too, I told her. And you'll be glad to know that Suetonius and Tacitus and the locals are all perfectly right about him and that Dr. Munte and Norman and the other whitewashers are perfectly wrong. They haven't the faintest idea what they're talking about. No, my aunt tranquilly agreed. Whitewashers never have. Evil does exist, and monsters have always been monsters. Nero, Tiberius, the Borgias, Richard III, John, are oh, contemporary tyrants. I believe in them all. Or, I asked myself presently, when warmed and clothed and fed. Can I have had some kind of a fit? I shall tell Norman about it tomorrow, and ask what he thinks. I met Norman in his favourite piazza cafe the next morning. Though the most patriotic of islanders, he told me that I had been the victim of an erroneous mass mythology, for Timberio had been a most excellent man, kind of heart and temperate of habit. Only, he added, refilling his three glasses, You've hardly begun yet. Timberio, according to the Caprians, could do much better than that. You must try some of the other caves. I'm going to break the habit of a lifetime now and do a little 
talky between two stories. That's a really short story, and it was recommended to me by Jay Rothermel. Now I'm going to put a, a link to his Substack in, because he talks a lot about this kind of literature that we do here. And he's um, uh, he's got such a uh, bibliographic knowledge of the genre and the stories that are in the genre. So, um, And he brought this to my attention. So he talks about uh, Rose Macaulay, born 1881-1958, and she, only wrote, she was a writer, but she only wrote two supernatural stories in her career, and both take place in the Mediterranean. So the second one is this one, Whitewash, which I've just read. You can get a copy of that for free. Um, I have, funnily enough, it's in the Virago Book of Ghost Stories. I've got that one, but it must be a different edition, though it's got the same title and the same editor because it's not in that. But anyway, there is a copy on archive.org, so I could read that for free. Jay directed me to The Empty Birth in an Anthology, which is actually out of print, out of uh, print print, but I was able to get a... Um, a Kindle copy, uh, an ebook copy for merely £5.50. So I shelled out for that, so I hope you appreciate it uh, and you think it's worth it when I read the second story by Rose Macaulay, The Empty Birth, which I'm about to do right now. The Empty Birth by Rose Macaulay. Shipley, when, with 172 other Hellenic travellers, he came on board the cruising castle at Marseille, was shown his stateroom and told by the steward, You'll be alone here, sir. The gentleman, Mr. Cotter, that was to have had the top berth, died suddenly three days ago. Shipley thought, Oh, poor chap. He was sorry for the man who had meant to spend his Easter holiday seeing Greece and hadn't brought it off. Having for the last two months seen his name, H. Cotter, coupled with his own, stateroom 93, in the printed passenger lists of the castle's April cruise, he had sometimes speculated with a little mild interest on his size, temper, age and habits. In a cabin six feet square containing two beds, these things are not unimportant. He hadn't known anything at all about Mr. Cotter. He had wondered if he was another schoolmaster and had rather hoped he was. One gets to feel at home with other schoolmasters when one has been one for five years or so. Shipley had every reason to feel at home on this voyage. There were three other masters, including the head, from his own school, and from the other schools, several dozens. There were also deans, canons, and many other broad church clergymen with their families. The clergy needed to be a little broad, or is it low, because the cruising master left Marseille on the Thursday before Easter Day, and one understands that this is not done by the high. Besides all these, there were numerous representatives of our universities, both dons and undergraduates, a few colonels, fewer merchants, many intelligent ladies, some less intelligent ladies, several comfortable matrons who chaperoned daughters and believed what their husbands told them about Greece, many cheery girls who were prepared to take Greece all in the day's work, but for whom the point of the cruise was the dancing on deck in the evenings and the cheerful social holiday life with generous meals and cricket and deck sports to fill up the intervals. Numerous writers of books on ancient Greece, novelists, poets and such, and in fact many others. They had all left Charing Cross on Tuesday morning and were now settling themselves and their luggage on the cruising castle in Marseille Harbour. Some of the passengers had just returned on the castle from a trip to the West Indies and were starting straight off again to Greece, 
These are they who never leave the castle. Theirs is a restless but interesting life. They are often retired colonels. Shipley had been to Greece the spring before. He was going again because the tour this year was rather different and because he wanted to improve his classical knowledge and because he was an intelligent young public schoolmaster and they do go to Greece and because his headmaster and family were going and he liked very much his headmaster's daughter, who was a nice girl. He stowed away his bag under his berth and sat down to change his boots for deck shoes. After all, though one was of course sorry about H. Cotter, it did leave more room. What rot, he wasn't sorry a bit. Why should he be, never having known H. Cotter? He was rather glad. This thought jumped clean and unwrapped from the bottom of his mind to the top, as if someone had pressed a spring, just as he finished lacing his shoes. It was as if someone, more direct than he, uh, perhaps a child, with a child's cheerfully frank brutality, had put his decently veiled and perfectly natural and excusable feeling suddenly into plain words for him. Why pretend there was more room? Yet it wasn't like Shipley to have said it, even to himself. He went on deck to find his friends and see the receding view of France. He joined Miss Steele, his head's daughter. She was cheerful, pretty, fair-haired, companionable, pleasant, and neither clever nor stupid. In short, a nice girl. This has been said above, but there is no more fitting phrase to describe her. She had her camera and was taking Marseille. Shipley got his out and took Marseille too. That is the worst of having brought a camera. You must use it. You may even join the camera club. I want to get Notre-Dame de la Garde, too, said Miss Steele, having got the harbour. She got it, then put up her camera. Have you met your cabin companion yet, she asked Shipley. Shipley said, he died, uh, poor chap, just before we started, so I haven't one. Oh, I see. Death was rather a sudden intrusion into the pleasant atmosphere. Dorothy left it alone and said, father's downstairs making up our table. It was already arranged that Shipley and indeed his two colleagues were to be made up in the same table as the Steels. They watched France recede, then went downstairs to dress for dinner. Shipley had his cabin quite to himself for this, an observation he made to himself as he dressed, and which may seem a truism, but somehow was not. Perhaps he hadn't got enough used to the knowledge that there was no H. Cotter, not to have a subconscious fancy that he might at any moment walk in. In fact, he found himself, as he left his stateroom at the sound of the gong, thinking of H. Cotter that, if he meant to dress, he would be very late for dinner, and then, still more oddly, came the idea that perhaps H. Cotter didn't mean to dress at all, didn't care about dressing. He caught himself out of this absent-minded foolishness as he entered the dining saloon and made for the table in the corner where the Steels already sat, together with the two other masters and three ladies and a dean, or friends. Shipley sat next to Dorothy Steele. They talked about when they would pass Corsica and Sardinia and through the Straits of Messina. They wondered whether it would go on being fine. They discussed the passenger list, lectures, deck billiards and Mount Athos, and whether they would rather visit Ephesus or Crete. The Steeles preferred Ephesus and Shipley Crete. Shipley was very happy in his civilised, moderate way. 
all at his table were civilised moderate people with a very proper appreciation of interesting sights and scenes and enough knowledge really to care for the right things in the right way. People who go on Hellenic cruises are mostly rather civilised, but not all. Some are crude and know little and say things that amuse the rest, which is, after all, a function. There was a family like that at the next table to the Steels. The father might be better called a paterfamilias. The mother was a stout and cheery lady, the daughter about eighteen, and full of solemn-eyed joy. The son, twelve, red-headed and noisy. He and his sister kicked one another under the table from time to time, and their mother said, Now, children! Reference to the dining saloon plan after dinner revealed to Shipley that they were Mr. and Mrs. Alexander Brown, Miss Nancy Brown and Master Robert Brown. Vulgar people, obviously. Their voices in speaking gave them hopelessly away. Mr. Brown was the sort of person to whom other people attribute sayings, more characteristic sayings than anyone really says, such as that he for his part didn't find Athens a patch on Blackpool. Perhaps it is justifiable, if people look as if they would say a thing, to relate it as having actually passed their lips. That evening, Shipley and Miss Steele, sitting on deck, found themselves close to the Brown family who were looking for islands. Of course, better educated people knew that there would be no islands for a long time. Miss Nancy Brown was obviously, in her untaught and ignorant way, an enthusiast. She seemed tremendously keen. Shipley and Misty listened with some amusement to her naive comments. "'What funny specimens do come to Greece?' Miss Steele observed afterwards. "'It's rather sweet of them to want to, I think.' At nine o'clock, Dr. Steele lectured on Thermopylae. After the lecture, Shipley went to bed. H. Cotter, he thought, as he lay down, would, had he not been dead, have come in noisily about midnight and woken him from his first sleep.' Poor H. Cotter. As a matter of fact, Shipley did wake about midnight, just as if H. Cotter hadn't been dead at all, but had come stumbling in. He lay awake and began to think about H. Cotter dreamily. He supposed that they would probably have talked a little while H. Cotter undressed. They would have exchanged comments on people and things and countries. H. Cotter might perhaps have remarked that it seemed absurd to waste time in bed, he meant to get up at dawn next day and have a look. An energetic person, Shipley imagined him. Then he must have dropped asleep again and dreamed, for he imagined quite a long and rather odd conversation. He thought he asked, uh, Were you at the lecture tonight? And H. Cotter laughed and said, I was there the first five minutes and I sneaked out. I was bored. Shipley, too, had been a little bored, but hadn't liked to sneak out. The trite touch, H. Cotter added. Whole family a little afflicted with the same complaint, aren't they? Besides, he made two mistakes in three minutes. Didn't you spot that? Shipley had only spotted one of them. He thought H. Cotter rude and in bad form. So I went on deck and played hide-and-seek with the Browns, went on H. Cotter. Those bounders, exclaimed Shipley, also rude and in bad form. However, they were both in a dream. Those bounders, H. Cotter assented tranquilly. I like them. They're the genuine thing, you know. The implied comparison annoyed Shipley. So did the placid self-confidence of this young man's tastes. He ended the conversation by withdrawing into the dark depths where dreams cannot follow.
He woke next morning with the words still echoing in his head. The trite touch, those bounders. I like them. They're the genuine thing, you know. He remembered as he dressed that H. Cotter had said in the dream that he meant to be up at dawn and waste no time. Suppose it was he, then, that was making that row overhead at six, running up and down, said Shipley, foolishly mixing up dream and waking, death and life, in an inconsequent way that wasn't like him. He even wasted a moment in being glad that H. Cotter was up and dressed. He was feeling irritated with him for his crude and tasteless comments on the Steele family. He went in to breakfast. Close to him, the two young Browns were chattering about how they had seen the sunrise and Corsica under the dawn, and had then played hopscotch and run races round the deck. That, Shipley supposed, was the noise that had disturbed him at six. They had seen a school of porpoises, too, jumping at the sunrise like happy pigs. We plugged into them with pennies, said Master Brown. Nancy got one slap in the middle. Oh, dears, how wasteful and unkind, said Mrs. Brown. You're just as silly as two babies, aren't they, Papa? Papa said, let them enjoy themselves, Mamma. We're out for a holiday, aren't we? Can't pore over our Greek books all day when we're young, can we, Nance? We mustn't forget what day it is, though, said Mamma. It was, of course, Good Friday. To Shipley and the Steels and most of the cruising castle passengers, that meant going to morning service in the saloon. To Miss Nancy Brown it meant, apparently, making a hearty breakfast of dry bread. Shipley, who couldn't help noticing this, deduced, with a little shock at the unexpectedness, that she was what he called High Church. Most of the Hellenic cruisers weren't particularly, and on the hilarious spirits of a brown, it sat oddly. Shipley and most other people went to matins, taken by a dean in the saloon at eleven, a sober, stuffy, placid service, upholstered in red velvet, and ever so gently swaying, and holding no elements of tragedy, and with a brief sermon on the decay of Corinth. When Shipley came up from it, he saw on deck those who hadn't attended it. Among them was Miss Nancy Brown. She stood alone, looking out to sea, her chin in her hands, looking at the porpoises that frolicked in the sea, happy and fat. But somehow Shipley knew that she wasn't thinking about them. If he had been a little nearer, he might have caught the glint of a tear on her rather thick black eyelashes, and from it he might have deduced in her an attitude towards Good Friday that lacked well-bred restraint. To Shipley it was a day to be taken quietly indeed, but temperately. Miss Brown appeared to begin it by hopscotch and wild running on the deck at dawn, go on to a dry-bread breakfast and spend the time when other people were at service in winking away tears as she watched porpoises at play. A simple, emotional, very young and crude person, probably. Shipley went to look for Miss Steele, who was in a deck chair reading the proceedings of the Hellenic Travellers Club for the last year. She had it open at last Good Friday's sermon, which had been about the self-sacrifice of the best architecture as instanced in the Acropolis buildings. Shipley sat down by her and her friend. Their cultured reticence of religious feeling was much more congenial to him than the theatricality of the less educated classes. They began to talk, and cutting suddenly through the pleasant young well-bred chatter came a profound and unrestrained yawn. It wasn't Shipley's yawn, nor Miss Steele's, nor her friend's, and no one else was near. 
Shipley glanced at the girls to see if they had heard it, but they showed no sign of having done so. So perhaps he hadn't heard it either. Perhaps he had only imagined it. The only thing he heard at the moment was Miss Brown's ringing voice lifted in admiration twenty yards away. I never saw anything so jolly blue. Apparently she had recovered her ordinary spirits again. He saw her going off next moment with her younger brother to play cricket. I shouldn't have thought they would today, said Dorothy Steele's friend, but Dorothy said kindly, oh, if they like to. Dorothy very seldom criticised. She was a remarkably nicely bred girl, Chipley found himself commenting. He meant to ask her to marry him sometime, only not early in the cruise, because if she refused him, which he thought she probably would, it would spoil the rest of the time for both of them. He would wait till the homeward voyage. Lying awake in bed that night, he quite decided this. Two days ago he had meant to ask her before they reached Greece, but after all that would be a silly plan. Oh, Lord, groaned H. Cotter from the berth above. I suppose either you want the girl or you don't. And either she wants to have you or she doesn't. You don't mean to say you don't know which, you silly ass. Besides, why should it spoil anything? A plain question and a plain no. You're both too beastly self-conscious, that's what's the matter. Why not ask her now and then again on the journey back? In fact, every evening after dinner. Nothing like regularity in these things. It breaks down the strongest resolution. But, excuse my asking, what the dickens do you want her for, my dear man? It's nothing to do with you, said Shipley stiffly. But I happen to be uh, to care for her. A hilarious chuckle jarred him. But I ask you why? Because she's pretty? Because she's polite? Because she always says the thing you expect? Because she's a nice girl? Oh, my dear good chap. Shipley, in his imaginary conversations with H. Cotter, always made him out this sort of offensive person. He realised the unfairness of it and the inevitability. And with the offensiveness there was a sort of buoyant vitality, a confident joy in good fellowship, and somehow an ability that he, trained by his profession in discerning ability, recognised in H. Cotter, which made it impossible to dismiss him as a tiresome bounder. Not once, but many times during the next few days, H. Cotter casually and carelessly set him right on some doubtful point of classical or geographical knowledge. The queer thing was that he always afterwards discovered this information of H. Cotter's to be correct. This threw an odd light on the subconscious self. Somewhere, obviously, he must have more knowledge stored than he knew of, and it rose in this strange way and erupted into his conscious thought as if from his imaginary companion's lips. Shipley began to have a great respect for H. Cotter's brain. His judgments had a swift, compelling sureness, a clean freshness, as if they came straight from the fountainhead, not like most people's at second hand. To Shipley, with his acquired erudition set in order in his sound and careful brain, this flashing, as of genius, was something unfamiliar and rather stimulating. By the time they got to their first landing place in Greece, his outlook on Greece and on other things was somehow altered, freshened, as if by contact with a brilliant child. 
On the first morning in Greece, riding a mule up the hot stone path that winds up Ithome, breathing in the aromatic air of the hillside and seeing the asphodel and poppies and scarlet anemones weaving by the path's edge and the big tortoises crawling hot-shelled in the sun, he found himself near Miss Nancy Brown. She was laughing, wide-eyed, for the joy of Greece, and in her companionship Shipley felt a sudden familiarity. Somehow it was rather like H. Cotard's, only H. Cotard knew a great deal, and Miss Brown knew nothing. But she knew she liked Greece, and she knew she wanted to catch and keep a tortoise, till her brother Bobby told her that tortoises were sick at sea. And at once a man took a tortoise on board in his pocket, and so she gave up the tortoise idea. At the place where steeds had to be abandoned by those who meant to push to the top of the mountain, Mr. and Mrs. Brown and their children parted ways. The level way to the Arcadian Gate for Mother and me, said Mr. Brown, mopping his forehead. The Arcadian Gate was where they lunched. You better come along with us, Nance. But Nance thought not. Of course Bobby and I are going to the top, she said, and started off with vigour. It was a steep and long scramble and a hot noon, and several strong men fainted by the way and lay under trees and had first aid. The Browns did not. They scarcely seemed out of breath. The Steels got distinctly weary, but conscientiously climbed on. Shipley, too, climbed on in grim determination. When they got to the top, the Browns ran all the way down at full speed. They were enjoying themselves. Shipley didn't see them again till, on the homeward way, he encountered them in a monastery courtyard, drinking tar-flavoured wine and eating Turkish delight and talking to the monks on their fingers. They passed the glass they had half-emptied to Shipley and the Steels. Miss Steele refused it in her pleasant, courteous way. Probably she didn't drink from other people's glasses. Shipley took it and drank. He gave it back, not emptied, to Miss Brown, who held it out again, as if there had been someone else at her other side to take it and drink it too. Then she drew back her hand, recollecting herself, and divided what was left between herself and Bobby. Shipley had an odd feeling of some jolly fellowship that was being sacramented, a fellowship not only of him and the Browns, not chiefly, even. The marvellous days and nights slid by, they went to Acro-Corinth and Athens and Tempe and Delos, Delos not being, it was long since known of the earth, is presumably a projection of heaven. On Delos, if anywhere, men may find their souls. People have stayed behind on Delos and counted the world well lost. Even Mrs. Brown, who had the night before announced herself weary of old stones, chased up the hillside to the sacred grotto and called pantingly, Nancy, Nancy, come and see the place where Apollo lived. Nancy herself moved pale and wide-eyed as in a dream through empty city streets, between roofless villas full of lizards and poppies and silence and the sun. Shipley, standing by the shining sacred lake and listening to the whispering of the sedges there, knew, for the first time since early childhood, the beauty and the youth of the ageless world. Newly for him the divine brother and sister were born on the lake shores, and he knew that they lived for always. For him they had passed out of the sphere of mythology, where they had been confined last time he came to Delos, and had become a living reality. He saw the world and its radiance with new eyes, eyes other than his own. He took off his hat and he stood as if to salute something. 
perhaps Apollo and Artemis, or merely all the radiant youth of the live world. At dinner he saw that Nancy Brown was still pale and her eyes danced like stars. Delos had been almost too exciting for her. She had had a bathe there too and was perhaps tired. Shipley heard her mother ask her, Did you bathe alone, Nance, or was anyone with you? Yes, there was, the girl began absently. Then Shipley saw her face change, as if she was coming out of a dream. No, I was alone, she said, and her voice showed her surprised at the realisation. Miss Steele asked him something about Paros, or uh, perhaps Naxos. Greece, even more than most things, must end. Hellenic travellers are here today and gone tomorrow. In seventeen days from the day they left Marseille, they were approaching it again. It was Sunday night, and they would land next morning. Shipley had travelled a long way from the time when he had decided to propose to Miss Steele on the homeward voyage. He no longer had the least desire to do that. In case anyone thinks that he proposed instead to Miss Brown, I hasten to add that he did not. He did indeed talk to her a little on the last night. He found her alone on deck at one end of the ship, while evening service, with a sermon from one of the canons on the glory that was Greece, was being conducted under an awning on the other. The strains of lead kindly light floated musically down to them. Shipley said, So it's over! And she nodded, turning her pale face and shining wide eyes on him in the starlight. It's been jolly, she said. Shipley deliberately put her to the test to prove what he practically knew, for he had long known how H. Cotar spent his days. The nights had been his, Shipley's, but the days, someone else's. Getting to know new and interesting people is uh, rather jolly, he said. She turned again and looked at him. That's just it, she said. Have you, too? He was my cabin mate. Uh, We've talked every night, said Shipley simply. Her startled eyes widened. Oh, do you mean... What do you mean? She breathed. Shipley said, dropping his voice a little. The same as you. One can't explain. It just is so. He died, uh, you know, uh, before we started. He was to have come. But he has come, she whispered laughing. He wasn't to be done out of Greece, was he? But why? Why have I got to know him so frightfully well? Why should it have been me? I never met him when when he was alive. I suppose he liked you, said Shipley inadequately and baldly. Yes, he told me he did, you know. Oh, she caught her breath sharply. And he's shown me Greece and everything. He's shown me life, said Shipley. Suddenly the girl's head fell onto her arms, and she gave a stifled sob. I want him, she whispered, and the longing in her voice cut Shipley's heart like a knife. Oh, I want him, and after tomorrow I shall never talk to him again. You can't tell, returned Shipley, fumbling for comfort. But she could. Oh, I know. He was let to come to Greece because he wanted to so, but now he's done with it all. He'll have to move on, and the way I've known him hasn't been enough to to let us go on being together. Don't you see? Shipley saw. But he saw, too, that the way she had known him had been enough to make, for the first time, any other intimate companionship unthinkable. 
he merely said. He'd want to make your life more jolly, you know, not less. And she agreed to that. He does, he has, he will. He's shown me so many new things. It is more jolly. She lifted her face gallantly to the stars with a little pathetic quiver of the lips. A stout shadow loomed up from the background and Mrs. Brown's motherly voice called, Nancy, Nancy, you must really have a shawl, my pet. Nancy came back with a little shiver to the world of shawls. She turned to go, but first held out her hand to Shipley with a little tearful, glimmering smile. He took it and held it for a moment in a companionable clasp. We both know him, she whispered. Isn't it jolly for us? Very jolly, said Shipley, smiling down at her. But afterwards, he wondered as he packed, was that quite what it was? Is it very jolly to have your whole view of life turned upside down so that what before seemed desirable becomes flat and unprofitable? Yes, I think it is, he decided at last, for whatever he had lost through the odd influence that had so subverted his standards, the vividness of colour, the radiance, the young exuberance, the clear, clean vision of life it had left with him, was really very jolly indeed. Many thanks, old man, and goodbye, he said aloud, as he turned off the light, and he could have sworn he saw through the darkness H. Cotter's cheerful smile. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back. Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So I thought we'd do something about her, who she was. So Dame, she was became a Dame of the British Empire, uh, which was uh, rewarded to her for her um, work with literature. Emily Rose Macaulay uh, was born in 1881, died in 1958. She was born in Rugby in Warwickshire. Um, her, her father was George Campbell Macaulay, a classical scholar, very interesting given the stories we've read. And Grace Mary Connie Bear, I don't know, I may have pronounced that name wrong. Her upbringing was imbued with a scholarly aura that would lay the foundation for her intellectual pursuits. She attended Oxford High School for Girls before studying modern history at Somerville College, Oxford University. Macaulay's literary journey was marked by remarkable transformation. From her early struggles with depression, she transitioned into a pro prolific novelist known for her incisive commentary on society and relationships. You can see she's got, she's a clever, clever writer. This, uh, tr you can see that in just her analysis of people. This transition is especially fascinating when considered alongside her complex relationships, her private life, and her evolving religious. And she was a mystic in many ways. Um, so her exploration of faith went beyond the boundaries of traditional Christianity. And you can see that in the Greek story, particularly reflect. You know, the second story, the um, upper birth. Of course, it makes you think of other stories, such as the empty birth, by which is very different by uh, uh, Marion Crawford. So she um, she left the Anglican Church and came back in 1953. Uh, her, she was um, could be sceptical and satirical about Christianity. And you see almost, I, um, I think that in this class of people at this particular time, there are all sorts of things going on clearly, and we're not going to be able to talk about them all here. But um, they were... Um, 
They were products of uh, the Western disenchantment with the world that began during the Enlightenment. That's a big thing to say, but it was a current that had gone on whereby um, that came up with Protestantism. And the, the most extreme and dry versions of Protestantism remove theatre and ritual deliberately. I remember my, uh, my, the chapel my grandmother went to, the, all they liked was a, was a, was a, a t- table, often not without a, cro- without a cross on it. And the room was very, very plain. There was no decoration. And that was because it was seen to be an ostentation. And so Protestantism has tended to become very austere and buttoned down. And, and also that is in the people as well as the decoration of the churches. It's in the people. One does not show emotion. So I think um, what she's doing there is, is uh, seeing that, not in such an austere way as the ultra-Protestants, if you like, but also a very English where people don't show their emotion. It is rather infra dignitatum to, to show emotions, but it's stultifying and deadening. And so the steels with their ever so polite, you know, classicalism. And it, it's hard. And also from the 19th century into the early 20th century, this incorporation of classical scholarship in Europe into modern European thought or polite bourgeois European um, culture um, kind of made it something else. It was like to say, you know, you, there are many, many curry houses in Britain, but they don't serve curry like, well, they might now, but the most of them don't have curry like you get in India. You know, Indians don't recognize the curry that traditionally you used to get here. Um, so, and it's like with classical Greece and Rome, which appears in both stories, you know, the, the actual classical Greece and Rome wasn't probably a very different thing from the version of that that was consumed by bourgeois, well-to-do, m- yeah, middle-class um, Europeans and English people um, in that time. And it, he, Rose Macaulay makes this not attractive at all certainly in 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 the upper berth and she contrasts it with a a more living spiritual tradition which is the browns are much happier carrying on so and and i think um the two things are conflated the english buttoned upness uh, of her class and whereas the the lower classes were not as buttoned up and they were very much looked down on as you see with the browns but they have a much better time and there's again this European, the the romantic thing whereby, you know, you've got Voltaire and Goethe and uh, Wordsworth, whereby the natural is, and this this has gone right through to our own time, what is natural is seen as better, what comes, arises naturally and is not buttoned down by civilization, civilization is seen as, is, as a more living thing and a more rewarding and vivifying and and we see that, you know, uh, and this, the dead man's spirit affects a, Cotta's spirit affects a transformation in Shipley. And he becomes a, a, a bigger, rounded person and realise, you know, as Shipley, as Cotta says to him, why do you want to marry this girl? He wants to marry her because it's socially conventional for him to do so, rather than he actually felt like he loved her or was gripped by any passion. I'm not um, actually endorsing passion above reason I'm, I'm not but uh, certainly that, I think that's what's going on here and um, 
they the real freedom here is in in a way it finally it reminded me of uh, Kenneth Graham's The Wind in the Willows, which has this this part you know the Piper at the Gates of Dawn, which is the god Pan. In this case, it's Apollo, isn't it? And Artemis is there, but Apollo and the not the and and the Christian sermons on the boat talk about classical Greece as if it was germane, but it wasn't. It it's just a, a confection, uh, and so. Um, I think that what we're seeing is, you know, an appeal to and a breaking through of that. You know, I saw some grass growing through the pavement today. Whatever, how many much concrete you put down, the grass will still grow up. So, uh, and I think that's a very positive thing, really. Uh, the green man is asleep, but he's not dead. Uh, and he's not even asleep at the moment. He's wandering around. But, uh, as you know, so the old gods are alive in a certain sense. And, that, and I think that is part of the appeal the rebound appeal of uh, of this classical paganism to this class of people who've been buttoned down by a very stultifying, deadening, conformist, controlling type of Christianity. And not all types of Christianity are like that either. Uh, but um, certainly the that was what was going on and the reaction to it has been for it to die, to wither and die in this country. It's it, that, that brand is struggling now because it tied itself to the state and control and emotional repression and 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 ultimately death and so it died and i may be taking a story a little bit further than she intended although i wonder i wonder if she were sitting here with me now whether whether we would be seeing eye to eye and what a story is about i rather think it would the first one um about the shark and the terror that actual the kind of phobic terror thing the water, this, it touches on phobic terror, isn't it, of the shark and the water and being pressed in the water. And it reminds me of, um, by Marganita Lasky, um, which is about fear of heights, and uh, The Spider by Basil Copper, which is about fear of spiders. And so in some horror stories, they use phobias. And if you've got that phobia, I guess it works. If you haven't, uh, I'm not sure it is as, as, as worky, if that means it, as effective is probably what I meant to say. Um, but yet, yeah, and what's that about? You know, basically, yes, it's a, it's a similar thing, isn't it? Tiberius is the wicked old man and the ancients and the locals who represent the real spring of life, the authentic life. I say, no, he's a bad old lustful, murderous person. And uh, those, in a, in a funny way, um, convey... They're unrestrained is what I, what I suppose the point is. They're shadow the shadow features, um, whereas the moderns are explaining, explaining him away and making him safe, which it clearly wasn't. And so I think the two stories have a similar, in the germ is the same, you know, that um, our modern or their or her modern um, life, this repressed English tidying up of everything and, you know, we don't want to mention anything unpleasant, oh dear, um, and we're all very buttoned up, um, is is undermined by an authentic, in which in, in both the stories has a classical origin of real life in its in all its colours, you know, good, bad and ugly. The, the good, bad and the ugly, good film that. I like the music so much. Anyway, I'm a bit tired. We've just come back from Glastonbury. We had an 11-hour journey yesterday because of the dogs and the terrible traffic. So, and it's, it's gone to be really hot. So uh, it's, this is where I record's really hot. Um, 
So probably that's all I want to say now. I'm going to try and put some of these in the can uh, so that I don't run out and you don't have any empty weeks. But I hope you enjoyed that. And thank you to Jay Rothermel and look out for the link in the show notes. And he's got a lot of interesting things to say and he will bring to your attention many stories that you hadn't heard of from his encyclopedic knowledge. Okay, hope you're all well. I'm going to edit and produce and do various things with this story now and uh, that's about it take care everybody everybody dies don't they everybody come back don't isn't that so you tried to get into the locked drawer today didn't you you tried how do the dead come back what's the secret of dead come back I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. Patrons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. 
And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts than on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you. Which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it. So you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members only stories. Every month, I do at least one members only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash. Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.